Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. The Federal Reserve Board has a two-day policy meeting that could be pivotal for the economy and the markets. And I know we say that a lot, everybody. You always hear that, right? This is the biggest Fed meeting ever, and and many times it is not. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and tell you this is the biggest Fed meeting ever, but this could be a very important Fed meeting. Welcome to Money Beat. I am Paul Vigna. Stephen Grosser has the day off. I am joined in the studio today by Money Beat reporter Ben Eisen. Ben, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Paul? I'm I'm doing all right. Thank you for asking. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Indeed, indeed. And uh, Wall Street Journal markets reporter Akani Otani, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're we're glad to have you. And joining us from Washington D.C., Wall Street Journal economics guru. I'll say guru, Greg Ip. Greg Ip. Great to be here. It's good. We need you here, Greg. You are not not for. I hate to spring this on you, but uh, you are going to be carrying this podcast today. Well, it's okay. nice to feel needed. You're very much needed. Uh, so, look, the Fed's having their two-day policy meeting. We all kind of know what that means. They're going to take a look at the economy. They're going to take a look at their policy, and they're going to calibrate the two. But th- this meeting has some some wrinkles in it that are unusual. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they're going to start doing something they have never done before, which is to deliberately shrink their balance sheet. Um, now, just to give you a little bit of context, the reason this is an issue is because way back in the depths of the crisis in 2008, interest rates fell to zero. They were out of conventional monetary ammunition, so they basically fired up the unconventional ammunition and began buying bonds and mortgage-backed securities. The whole idea being that as you buy these bonds, their prices go up, their yields go down. That gives an extra jolt of stimulus. Well, here we are. You know, it's uh, nine years later. Unemployment is back to where we would consider a full employment, healthy economy uh, to have it. And the need for that extra-large balance sheet has essentially receded. And so the Fed would like to get its balance sheet back to normal size. And it looks like all signs indicate that they've decided that this is the meeting when they're going to begin that process. The you know, hitch, of course, is that they've never done this before because right. the so-called quantitative easing that got them here has never been done before. Right. I mean, all of this was unprecedented. The Fed's balance sheet before the crisis was, I want to say, around $980 billion. Uh, I think all of that was government debt, right? You've got that right. right. And, you know, part of those assets were essentially short-term loans to the dealers that they work with every day to manage interest rates, but that's pretty small. Right, right. And now it is, uh, and we had this conversation yesterday in the newsroom, Ben, right? It's $4.2 trillion or $4.5 trillion depending upon which assets you include. Right. I mean, the, the Fed's balance sheet is so large these days that there are many ways to look at it, I guess. And uh, it's $4.2 trillion when you consider just the treasuries and the mortgage-backed securities that were um, that they hold currently. And that's sort of uh, pretty much what they bought uh, as part of their quantitative easing programs. It's $4.5 trillion once you consider everything else. Um, that should shrink uh, over the next couple of years if the Fed does decide to start uh, trimming its balance sheet. How do they go about this when we talk about trimming the balance sheet? I mean, what does that mean? What are they going to be doing? If you own a big portfolio of bonds, there's two basic ways to try and get rid of them. One of them is to simply let them mature. And as they mature, they get paid back. And they basically, the money that they're repaid with, they simply withdraw it from circulation. Mm -hmm. It's the 
essentially the mirror image of the expansion process where they would buy bonds and pay for, for them by creating money out of thin air. That newly created money will now basically disappear. Nice trick, huh? Don't try this one at home. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The other way to do it is to go out into the open market and sell them, much the way that Treasury sells bonds. The Fed has elected to go with the first route, to basically allow the balance sheet to shrink naturally through the maturation process. And the appeal of this is that because everybody knows exactly what they hold, they can predict with a fair degree of certainty what will mature when, and there will be no sort of disruptive sales of bonds into the market. And that mm -hmm. essentially meets the Fed's primary criteria here, which is to be as boring as possible, to make this a process, as one official put it, be like letting paint dry. I mean, w when you um, look at what the, ma the market reaction has been like so far to sort of the telegraphing of, of what what's going to happen it seems like really no one no one in the market's really paid that much attention the, the, there've been no irregular market movements so far um, but yet at the same time you're sort of embarking on something pretty dramatic that really rearranges the amount of supply uh well, sort of the supply demand balance in in the bond market um, so I, I mean is there a sense of what could happen um, and what people are sort of prepared for um, or trying to prepare for so I'd defer to you guys in the markets love to hear your point of view whether people that there are nervous but honestly they've been talking about it so much and because markets are supposed to be forward-looking you know Ben I would have like you I would have anticipated that if there was going to be an issue we would have seen it erupt somewhere right now I mean if you ask me I think the more striking and in some sense worrisome thing is that bond yields have actually been going down for the last four or five months which is kind of the opposite of what you'd expect if they were prepared for a big slug of new securities securities to be dumped in their laps as the Fed undergoes this unwinding process. And I think that that ought to actually give the Fed a little bit of pause. I mean, what does it tell them that they're saying, hey, we think everything's great. We're going to like undo these extraordinary measures. The bond market is saying, well, things aren't so great. We actually think the world needs lower rates, not higher rates, maybe more easier monetary policy, not tighter monetary policy. I mean, at the back of everybody's minds, the fact that these inflation numbers have been, you know, strangely going down instead of up, which again is not what you'd expect if the economy were as healthy as the Fed claims it is. So if you ask me, I think that people are in some sense worried about the wrong thing. They're worried about bond yields shooting up as the Fed goes under the undergoes this process. I'm a little bit worried that there is telltale signs out there. The Fed's whole approach to this scenario that the world needs less monetary ease might turn out to be the wrong one. Well, yeah. I mean, if you talk about what the Fed is selling in terms of a monetary policy that they've been previewing for a very long time, uh, what they are selling the market is buying, Akani, because you look at the Dow, you look at indexes, you know, they're going up. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of <laughs> to been say a, the least. It's kind of been a strange uh, couple of days for the markets because uh, you know we have, we have seen bond yields falling for uh, the last six days or so. Stocks back at record highs, volatility measures at very low levels. It just seems like for all of the hype around you know how this could be potentially one of the biggest, most important Fed meetings of the year. Um, when you look at the actual markets, it seems like very little concern uh, is priced in. Um, and that extends even outside of the U.S. I mean, I think last week we saw flows into um, EM equity funds again for, uh, I don't know, like the 32nd time um, in a row. Uh, and we saw people continuing to pile in on bearish bets against the dollar. These are all things that sort of indicate that the type of concern that you might have anticipated ahead of this 
uh, pretty unprecedented uh, series of next steps for the Fed hasn't actually materialized in the markets. Yeah. And I, let's actually, I don't want to cut you off, Ben, but I'm going to cut you off. We will come back on the other side of this. We're talking about the Federal Reserve, monetary policy, what it means for the markets, the economy, what it means for you. This is The Money Beat Show. You are listening to The Wall Street Journal. So how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right. Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul here in the studio with Ben Eisen and Akani Otani and Greg Ip in Washington, D.C. And uh, Ben, I cut you off. I apologize for that. But I'm going to cut you off again because I want to go back to Akani. Uh, <laughs> Very rude. <laughs> I know, extremely yeah, rude. Paul, come on. <laughs> Um, it's uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a bandbox in here, man. We can't be. Don't have time for niceties. Uh, Connie, when you talk to people in the markets, what are they saying about Fed policy? What are they saying about what the Fed's going to do? The, uh, clearly, you look at the indexes; they're not worried about it. But I mean, what are people saying about it? I think the number one thing that they're watching out for is a sharp rise in bond yields. People will talk about the 2013 taper tantrum as sort of a um, preview of what might happen if this unwinding of policy happens in a less than orderly way. Um, you know, back in 2013, we saw bond yields uh, almost double, around 3%. We saw stocks uh, sell off. And, uh, you know, some people were a bit worried heading into this month that if the Fed's moves weren't well telegraphed, we could see a shock ripple through the markets again. But, you know, that being said, we haven't actually seen that. So it seems like a lot of investors and analysts are saying we we won't really see uh, the full effects of the balance sheet normalization um, for at least a couple of months, especially since the Fed has signaled it's going to move quite slowly. It's not going to um, roll off the balance sheet in one big swoop. Um, it's it's hard to see a giant shock happening. Yeah, and, and just to jump in on that, I mean, it seems like when people talk about worries about um, bond yields rising, it seems like it's worries about specifically long-term bond yields rising, which is uh, sort of the back end of the treasury yield curve, and that's that's a very different type of um, of of bond market move than what we see when the Fed lifts short-term interest rates, because that. Uh, that really impacts uh, the short the short end of the yield curve the most. So um, when you think about long-term yields rising, that uh, honestly it impacts a different part of the economy. And maybe uh, this is something Greg knows about more than I do, but you know, there's certain parts of the economy, economy that are way more sensitive to long-term bond yields. Like when you think about a mortgage, a mortgage is based on a 10-year treasury note. And so uh, if 10-year if treasury yields are jumping up sharply, that... Uh, probably impacts the real estate market more than uh, other parts of of the economy um, so you have you have sort of a different a different possible scenario when you think about uh, financial tightening here I would just sort of add here that um, I think now for quite a few years 
when I say quite a few, I mean 20 years. People have been expecting bond yields to go up. Right. <laughs> it has been the mother of all widowmaker trades. Yeah. <laughs> and Absolutely. it's, you know, you periodically get this positioning when you're caught offside and that produces the taper tantrum. I guess it's getting hard for me to be scared of a big bond sell-off when I've been warned about it so many times and it never happens. Or when it happens, it means bond yields go up 50 basis points, which frankly is not really that much. So right. just to sort of explain why I think that it's still not time to ring the alarm bells, I would point out that it's even as the Fed starts to shrink its balance sheet, the Bank of Japan is still expanding its. The European Central Bank is some ways away from ending its own quantitative easing program. There are a lot of central bank buyers of those bonds. There's a lot of private sector and sovereign wealth buyers of those bonds. I mean, um, look, nobody would have thought that in these conditions, bond yields, treasury yields would be around 2%, and that those are actually on the high side, <laughs> you know, among developed markets. I mean, they're lower in Europe, and they're lower in Japan, yeah. and they're almost the same level in Great Britain. They're, you know, even in countries that never did QE like this, like Canada, Australia, bond yields are all the same. So looking around the world, I still think that we need to worry more about why bond yields are as low as they are not about the possibility of them going higher. And I mean, one sort of uh, previous scenario that we can sort of look to in this, uh, um, you know, obviously this is an unprecedented maneuver that the Fed is taking on, but uh, Connie mentioned the, the sort of taper tantrum of the summer of 2013 when the Fed signaled that it uh, would stop purchasing uh, new bonds and um, as part of its QE program, and then yields they did jump uh, a decent amount, uh, more than a full percentage point uh, through the end of 2013. But then uh, an interesting thing happened in 2014, which is they just turned around and started going the opposite direction, and um, they fell. They they fell and they kept falling, falling, and they hit record lows last summer. Uh, the 10-year Treasury yield, that is. Um, so, I, I mean, in some sense, it seems like people are getting less scared of yields rising because uh, when they have risen, they've just come back down afterwards. You know, it's, what's amazing, too, is you, you talk about 2013. I mean, you can make the argument that the Fed has been preparing their policy change for four years. I mean, Ben Bernanke shocked the markets. Into, I remember, and I'm sure, Greg, you remember it, too. Uh, I mean, he really surprised the markets when he even just started talking about it, and that was a taper tantrum. They have now had four years to calibrate the market to this idea of QE, massive, historic, federal inter federal bank intervention going away. Uh, the markets are so used to this idea at this point, Connie. No one's even talking about the fact that, Greg, you said at the start, you know, this is unprecedented 4.5 trillion dollars now have to be unwound have to be taken out of the market nobody is even re seems even remotely concerned about this yeah you look take a look at it, like traders notes this morning and you know everyone's certainly mentioning this is probably the biggest event uh, in the financial markets this week but most of them are also describing it as a likely non-event uh, right. <laughs> so it sort of shows you the level of uh concern or fear uh, or around lack this. of. Yeah, Total the level, lack of. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one person who has been concerned, I will say, is uh, Jamie Dimon. He made a comment about this publicly. Uh, it was pretty outspoken that he thinks it's not going to go as smoothly as watching paint dry. Um, I think a few other sort of uh, industry-type people have, have expressed concerns that something unexpected could happen. But at the same time, because this is so unprecedented, it's like, what do you even... Like, what case can you really build for 
for, for, for something happening. You know, it's just sort of the, the fear of the unknown in some ways. I mean, he's absolutely right. The, the unexpected always can happen. And going back to the taper tantrum of 2013, I mean, part of the reason for the um, intensity of the um, sell-off was that people had not expected Bernanke to signal that this was coming. Uh, there was another factor, too. People thought that the Fed wasn't just going to taper its bond buying at the time. They also thought it was going to start raising interest rates, which at the time were close to zero. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like a one-two punch, and the Fed um, Fed officials spent the next six months trying to make it as clear and explicit as possible that no, uh, an end to tapering or sorry, a tapering of our bond buying has said nothing about what the path for short-term interest rates would be. Now you fast forward to 2017. Let's set aside the balance sheet picture altogether and mm. look what people have been saying about the path for short-term interest rates. For some time now, the Fed has signaled that they plan to raise rates three times this year if they've done it twice so far. Um, but now with, all the, with, with the inflation numbers coming in as soft as they can, there's growing doubts in the market that they will you know, go ahead with the third increase in December and then keep going next year. And you've heard commentary such as from Lael Brainerd, one of the Fed governors, certainly to be sure, one of the more dovish governors, mm -hmm. that suggests that um, the case for raising rates any lo any further is a weak one indeed, given how low inflation is. So I think that um, uh, in some sense, all the excitement about the balance sheet is a is actually a sideshow relative to what does the Fed plan to do with short-term interest rates. I can easily imagine a scenario. In fact, it might be the one that's unfolding now, where the Fed proceeds to uh, you know unwind its balance sheet precisely as it has telegraphed, and yet at the same time, they guide the market lower on the path for short-term interest rates. And that's an environment in which you get very little movement and perhaps further declines in bond yields. Well, whatever is going to happen, we will all learn about it on Wednesday. Uh, and this team, as well as other people from the Wall Street Journal, will be bringing it all to you. Greg, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're always happy to have you on. And Ben and Akani, thank you both for coming on. Thanks, thanks Paul. And everyone, thank you for listening. As always, I know I say this all the time. I really do mean it, though. We, we absolutely appreciate your listening. We like doing this. We like bringing this to you. We hope you get something out of it, and we will talk to you soon.